What's up, folks? Happy Monday. This is the Emulsion episode 9. I'm your host, Justin Kana, and here and now is when I serve up some facts and my opinions on everything that mattered to me in the last week of the food, restaurant, chef, fine dining sphere. Normally, we take a minute and I do a little bit of self-promo here at the start, but I'm super empathetic to basically how people are with ads, and I also kind of feel weird for offering you content to kind of tangent off of before I even get started on the show. So before we kind of get into the show, I'm going to try something a little bit different for the next couple of episodes where basically everything I put out is going to be announced before the non-industry stuff at the end of the show. And so then maybe you can kind of make a little list of your own about what you'd like to check out after you head off from this show, um, kind of from listening or watching my mouth kind of make noises. Uh, So again, as normal, that's always going to be listed in the show notes. Uh, That will be kind of more or less wherever you end up listening to the show, you'll be able to find those uh, for your convenience. So boom, shortest intro in show history here at The Emulsion. So let's get into today's stories. Uh, first up is a story that I wanted to share with the show, um, and I wanted to start with it because it, the, the real meat of this show is going to get a little bit controversial and possibly spark some debate. So we're going to start with something a little bit uh, creative and aesthetically pleasing, and that's the news about Muguritz's new tasting menu for this year. So all the info just dropped from that, and yeah, I literally talk about it like an album because for a restaurant like Muguritz, this is more or less their set list for the year. Uh, if you don't know anything about Mugaritz, it's a restaurant near San Sebastian in Spain. That's basically their story is they're closed for four months of the year. So now, actually on April 12th, they they open. And until December 10th, they do service, I would probably just assume, five days a week. Um, and basically for those four months that they're closed out of the year between December and April... They're, they do R&D, so they just basically come up with the next year's, the upcoming year's menu, uh, and they put a lot of thought into it. They have a big team that comes around and like creates all these dishes, and my sources state that they've come up with over 40 new dishes for this year, um, and this is more or less normal. Uh, I recall that they, they normally have between, like, it used to be like 60 dishes that they do, um, which was a little like crazy ambitious. I'm not entirely sure all of those were that creative. Um, But after doing a little bit of Instagram searching, I found a menu photo that's 29 dishes long. So that's the menu that they're currently serving, or at least in the last five days that they've been open. I assume they were closed a little bit over the weekend. Um, But from their first few services, 29 dishes is what they're currently working with. Obviously, things are going to be tweaked as the year goes on. That's what they've, they've said in their big press release that they did for the menu. Things will come on and off and more or less change, but that closure that they take is structured so that they can come up with some new concepts for the year ahead. Of those concepts, one includes basically doing away with dessert, which I thought was super interesting. They're focusing on, quote, punctuating sweet notes during the meal, end quote. So for example, the sixth course out of 29 is a dish called strawberries and cream. So, uh, and there's also even a course third from the end called, does the truth really matter with a question mark? So obviously they're getting super conceptual with some of this stuff. Um, the sixth course on a 29 course serving strawberries and cream is not something that I would do, but, um, I'm sure that they found a way to kind of like accentuate and make sure that it makes sense in the context of the entire meal. 
Um, not to mention the restaurant also says that 80% of the dishes will not require cutlery. Uh, a move that's not only smart for a restaurant doing 29 courses, like logistically speaking, you don't have to have someone running around uh, setting everybody up for the next course, but they also say it's important to do uh, for more playing with the senses and pushing prejudices aside. That's another one of the reasons that they kind of did away with the entire aspect of dessert. For me, it's interesting, and one of those inter- the, one of those reasons I wanted to talk about it because it's something that like my friends and I would literally in culinary school or even like a little bit after that we would get psyched up and message each other menus uh, like when news dropped like this when we'd be like, "Yo, did you see the new Mugurit stuff?" And I feel like this kind of creative excitement doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, I didn't have a single friend that shared uh, that post on on Facebook or even like people that would retweet about it on Twitter or, you know, it's, 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 it's hard because it's a different, it's a different landscape now. So, um, we've definitely become overstimulated with creative food. And this is one of the questions I'd like to pass on to you guys. So go ahead and leave your thoughts in the comments, but is there a restaurant or a chef that releases a new dish or a new menu and you get excited about it? Like you're literally compelled to share or is part of the problem the fact that a photo doesn't really do it justice like Mugaritz basically released four like photoshot professionally done f- dishes from the new menu um and that's kind of like where this entire article came from obviously there's there's more to to be seen if you go ahead and just search the hashtag Mugaritz on instagram that's basically where i found some of my information for this story um the internet being the way that it is but i mean going back to like photos not doing it justice maybe we can just talk about the fact that jay rayner the story that we talked about last week when he tore apart Le Cinq, the photos that the restaurant promotes itself with are are really not what you get when you go to eat there it's kind of displayed by the way that jay posted photos from his iphone given the lighting was terrible and you know maybe the dish sat for a, a few minutes but um it's 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 hard to kind of justify that. Do you do you have any experience? Uh, like, do you think you have to experience it to get hyped about it? Do you have to have a friend of yours that goes and has a good experience, and then you can get excited about something like this? Or, you know, I'd I'd be interested to hear your 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 thoughts on this. Also, I've heard from most, multiple industry friends of mine that have eaten at Mugritz in the past. Whether or not it, it definitely wasn't this year, but basically, a lot of people have told me that their meal was, yes, very, very conceptual, but it wasn't always all that delicious. So have we kind of become this society that only wants delicious things and not necessarily food that challenges us or prejudices or like the traditional way that things have been done? Have you eaten there? Like, I'd love to know your thoughts. I'm definitely someone that doesn't like to knock a restaurant or like super hype up a restaurant until I try it. Um, but just hearing about uh, thinking about things in a different way is something that I gravitate towards and something that I'm interested in and something that I, it's one of the reasons I still continue to follow Mugritz. I'm definitely someone that, um, like I have a signed copy of the Mugritz cookbook literally next to me on my bookshelf. I met Chef Andoni in New York City when he was doing the book tour. I've always been a fan of these guys, but I never really got the opportunity to eat there. But that constant push for new ideas and even taking time off to create something is, I've always found that inspiring. So I'd, 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 it's good to know that they continue to do that kind of work, even though the hype for them isn't necessarily still there. Um, but let, let, let's, I'd love to know your thoughts on this one. I'm going to take a coffee, coffee sip.
Okay, next. That was the sound of me cracking my fingers because we're going to get into a topic that's really been stirring up the industry, not just lately, but over the past, I'd say probably two, three, four years. Um, You've seen articles about it. You talk about it over a beer with your peers, but no one's managed to kind of solve what a lot of people are calling this quote unquote problem. And that has to do with kitchen labor. And I want to start with an article that's come out this past week. Um, We're going to get into a few different sources from these stories, so I'll try to keep them all um, in a row when I'm trying to reference something. Um, But the the article that I'm going to mention for the most part and the reason that I wanted to cover this story this week is because Corey Mintz, a food writer for The Global and Mail, published an article called The World's 50 Best Get By With a Lot of Unpaid Labor. And it's super interesting. It sparked a lot of heat. Uh... It's something that needs to be well-researched before you kind of like, because that is a very compelling headline. And basically in it, he talks about the moral implications that come along with asking a young cook to work for free. So let's start with that in addition to other things. So we're going to start with that. And I think it's important to discuss both sides of this story as far as um, there's, I mean, I guess you could technically say there's three sides. There's the cook and then there's the, the chef or the person that is in charge of taking on this labor. Uh, and then there's the guest, of course, that's more or less paying for the experience to be there and experience what's what's happening with this this unpaid work. So um, if you're if any of you are writing or if any of you are watching live or listening later, go ahead and leave a comment regarding any of this, and we can elaborate more on it next week because it's definitely not something that can be covered in a single episode or a single podcast or even a single article. And it, the, because of that, I want to start a discussion on it. So go ahead and um, hashtag the emulsion on Twitter or maybe on Instagram. It's not really where I see any engagement happening, but Facebook works. Go ahead and uh, send me a message there or just leave a comment down below this live stream and we'll, we'll cover it next week um, because it's something that I want to continue to talk about going forward. So let's start with an example. So you're a high-end restaurant, right? Charging for what he gives an example of $220 a head for food, given his metrics were from 2014. So it's probably closer to like $265, for example. Now you're already making slim margins, right? Even though you're charging what some people would consider crazy prices for a menu. And all of a sudden you get a knock on the back of the door. You get a knock on the back door from a guy who says he wants to work with you for free. He wants to learn in your kitchen or she wants to learn in your kitchen and help out with prep and service. Now taking like taking aside the legality aspect of it, which is kind of weird for me to say, but this definitely happens across all industries. I mean, there's no hiding behind that. Uh, Internships are definitely not new. Uh, but the way that this article compares it to specifically the food industry is, quote, one of the amazing egalitarian elements of restaurants has always been the low barrier to entry. If you want to become a doctor or a lawyer, there's no way around the low requirement of a long and expensive education. But anyone with the right combination of humility and dedication can start a cooking career by knocking on the door of a kitchen. Which is true. I have friends who have done this, friends who have come up to the back of a two Michelin star restaurant, knocked on the door and, you know, offered to work for free for six months. Um, All of us that went to the culinary school that I went to had to have six months of um, kitchen experience before we even got 
like accepted into you know the the school in general so how do you get that experience when you have none um a lot of the times walking up to the back door and offering to work for free is a good way to kind of start that journey but how restaurants across the world basically survive on this type of deal is what i want to talk about um asking questions like, could Renee do the same food at Noma that they do now if it weren't for stagiaire help? Could Massimo Bottura continue to operate and stay open if they had to pay every single set of hands working for them? I'm not 100% sure. And just to give a little bit of background, the article actually talks about kids at my alma mater, the Culinary Institute of America, going to these places and doing their externship which for us was basically a time between the first and second years of school where you take five months and you experience in the real world. You go into a kitchen or you go into a dining room or you go into, you know, a bakery and you spend time there and you you learn from them. You have certain assignments. You're in charge of learning. It's very, very structured. It's not necessarily just, you know, you come in, you prep, you go home. You have to do an entire manual at the end of it. But what they talk about is the kids that go to sites that are unpaid. The the school literally wouldn't comment when Eater or Corey, the author of the article, asked, like re- reached out to them and asked for a comment on their, their thoughts on unpaid externships. And I think that's funny because I remember this from when I did my externship at Per Se. They persuaded me to go to a paid site because I'm fairly certain they can get in trouble for having kids go to restaurants and work for five months that don't pay them, especially like when you're doing the hours that I was working. I was working 12 or 13 hours a day for free. Uh, And of course, they can't be expected to endorse that. Of course, my experience at Per Se wasn't that easy. I'd pick... 2,000 plus microgreens a day. I'd crack and take out the membranes of five flats. That's like uh, 150 eggs. I'd clean 10 bunches of parsley. I'd do liters after liters of brunoise, strain stocks, all of it. And the connections that I made, like looking back at it, like taking aside the the work aspect of it, the connections that I made at that restaurant and more more than that, the observation that I did carried me to later success later on. And I think that's something that isn't talked about enough in this article and why I, uh, why I want to talk about it personally on the show because I, I can come at it from a different, like Corey literally references in his article that he's done some cooking in the past and he did a stage at a Japanese restaurant and a French restaurant, both which he considers invaluable to his career, but me being someone who has been so in it, I, I, I want to like restructure the conversation in a different way and focus more on, yes, it's happening. How can it be done better? Um, so going back to it, yes, the deal is, quote, I'll work for free. Just teach me. That's, you know, what we're saying basically to these restaurants. But the other facet that's not taken into consideration is the the people aspect of it. So does the sous chef or the chef de partie basically the person who is in charge for these stagiaires have enough time or even care enough to teach these people anything of value or as a stagiaire you just considered an extra set of hands to do mise en place or or clean up you know i've had it where at the restaurant in norway we'd have a stagiaire and it'd be crazy slow at the restaurant and we'd you know we wouldn't have any prep for them to do and you know it'd just be like well they're here so make them clean 
Flipping the coin, does that stagiaire have enough drive and initiative to ask questions and get involved and put their best work forward to really get anything out of the experience in the, in, at the end of the time? Or is it just you know, three months at a world's 50 best restaurant to put on the resume only that's the payoff in the end. Um, and I, I get it. Like the, there, are, there are places, there are cities in the world where if you are able to come back to that city, having had a, a stint at a restaurant of, of super, super high caliber, you are way more likely to get offers of, uh, dinner requests of investor attention of other cooks wanting to work for you i i see the benefit and i i'm very empathetic to it and i i I see it but what i'm i'm concerned with is the takeaways that cooks have from these places um i was very fortunate enough to have my staging early on be considered part of my education and my parents definitely helped me financially a lot to do that traveling early on in my career because I wanted to learn as much as possible at restaurants all over the world. I wasn't I didn't I didn't want to feel limited to New York City. I went to Le Bernardin, I went to Alinea, I went to Noma, I, I went everywhere there was to go in that time period. And it's one of the reasons why I feel even remotely qualified to talk about this story because it's not just the fact that he's talking about unpaid labor, but he's talking about it in these world 50 best, like super high caliber Michelin starred places. Um, Corey flips the article about halfway through and talks about restaurant performance at this level. So he flips it from the stage to the restaurant. So you have the same number of kitchen staff as you do guests, basically. Uh, and it's easy to do outrageously prepared, intricately plated food because you just throw people at the at the problems and at the job. Um, will it ever go away? I, I'm not sure, again, because the cost of entry is so small. And if you're ready and willing, especially in this job market with restaurants, it's super easy to get in. So if you're a cook and you're young and you're, you're, you're you know, you're able to do this kind of like traveling and uh, work and experience these kinds of places, I a hundred percent suggest you do it because it is one of the easiest and most sustainable ways to travel for a while. I mean, I say sustainable as someone who is like physically capable of pulling 12 and 14 hour days. Um, if you're not, it's definitely not something I would advise for you to do. But as someone like me, who is completely okay with putting in that kind of work, I was able to see some pretty incredible places and especially like if you're willing if you're able to crash on someone's couch and if you're willing to be flexible with your travel dates and you know kind of like buy like my flight to Nor- my one-way flight to Norway when I left was something like $300 from Oakland to to Bergen which is uh, like crazy $300 and if you are able to stay on someone's couch for free you're working for free you are able to get staff meal at the restaurant five or six days out of the week. And then on the weekends, you can either, you know, cook with your friends or, you know, sometimes half the restaurants you'll go to in these cities. If you say that you're working at Noma, if you say you're working at Alinea, they'll hook you up and you'll get to like have amazing experiences at other restaurants because, you know, you're associated with these establishments. So it's an experience that I really, really valued in my career and something that I would push people towards, but you have to have the right attitude going going into something like that. I, I do want to emphasize one point, and it's one of the reasons I 
value my time in Norway so much. Um, this is getting very personal, so if maybe you, you just either speed up the podcast or, or stick around for a little bit while I kind of go through this, but I think it's really important. Um, I got to a point in my res- where my resume was so star-studded, it was crazy. Like I said, I have all these places that I spent time with in very, very short amounts of time just where I went to go check it out. But I wasn't fooling the winners. None of the real chefs cared where I staged. And no one, no one, like, everywhere that I wanted to get a job, um, they didn't, they didn't care. Because in reality, I really didn't know how to cook. I was so frustrated. It was really, really frustrating to me to look at these guys who were on the meat or on the fish or on the sauce stations and they could really cook. Like they could, they could survive a hundred cover service. They could pick up three dishes at the same time. They could like, they had all the moves. They knew exactly what the chef wanted. They knew how to, like, I knew how to plate and I knew how to prep, but cooking for me was so unknown because I never got the chance. No one ever gave me the at bat. And part of that was me, you know, like when you're staying for somewhere for two weeks or a month or five months even, who's going to, you know, train you to be on a station where someone else is committed to two years? It doesn't make sense. But in Norway, I got there and literally the first day I was thrown on the Entremat station, day one. And I was basically forced to take all those skills of organization and mise en place and apply them to this thing that I was actually cooking. Um, I had to communicate with a station partner on pickups. I had to glaze vegetables properly. And of course I've eventually made it onto the meat station very, very quickly. Um, it was, it was a, a place where I was so ready and I was so hungry for it because of all that experience of seeing other people do it and seeing what other people fucked up and seeing like all the thing like that is what ultimately set me up for success. Um, and I definitely did get to a very dark place where I was like, I can't cook, but I have all these best restaurants in the world on my resume. It was about two years ago. I went to Fransen in Stockholm to stage for a week when it was slow at least Falka. Chris suggested that we all go stage somewhere and I, I had chose Fransen. And after talking with their meat chef de partie for two days, he was asking me questions it was it was pretty crazy. They had two Michelin stars, and we were just some some no nobody restaurant in Norway. But you know, just getting to the point when you can stage so well and have that much experience and the people skills to kind of ask the questions to get more out of the experience, I think it's really really important. So what's my point? I'm not saying don't stage. I'm saying take the opportunity to be open minded and actually learn when you do a stage. Right, There are very few chefs out there that regret their staging experiences, but the ones that really crush it are the ones that ask questions and get involved and really seek to get more out of it than just the name on the resume. To kind of hyperbolically quote Daniel Balud's letters to a young chef, quote, you learn more cleaning lobsters at a three Michelin star spot than you do working the grill section at a bistro. And of course, that's not exactly what he says, but it's true. It's true. It's 100% true. I mean, look at Ed Lee. I want to kind of uh, haphazardly transition into something a little bit more lighthearted, but still on this story. And he's taking his spot 601 Magnolia, 601 Magnolia in Louisville, Kentucky. And he it, he basically looked at the problem of lack of good cooks and compared it to a community that he lives in with a 30% unemployment rate. And what he did with that is started a program called the Chef Lee 
L-E-E in all caps, that stands for Let's Empower Employment Initiative. What it is is it's a paid 40-week vocational training program for youth who are eager to learn, they're motivated, and they need a job. So to get in, there's an application process, and the restaurant has some basic requirements for eligibility, so you need to be at least 17 years old, pass a drug test, have a high school diploma or GED. But beyond that, you basically just need to have like the hard work ethic and the drive that those are the only thing that he looks for. Um, I'm quoting this off of a, a publication called, uh, or a website, I guess, called Journey. Um, if you haven't checked them out, that'll be the link that I link to in the show notes. But these these kids, they don't need previous restaurant employment. They don't even need to have any basic cooking skills. It's more or less taught as part of the initiative. He's looking to teach people job skills. And to me, what's cool about it is that I'm quoting Ed Lee now, quote, we don't fire you. You can leave, but we can't fire you. Once people know that, they don't live in fear of being fired. It's a game changer. So he basically uses it almost as a training program. So if after the four weeks you want, 40 weeks, you want to stay, he's got trained people in his restaurants, you know, like you've already spent 40 weeks with him. You might as well stay and we have a job for you. But if not, he wants to structure the initiative to make sure that those skills uh, will apply to another job. You can put this restaurant on your resume, you know, and go forward with this knowledge and any sort of work ethic or skills you've learned and apply them to something where you do really have an interest or you do really want to kind of like work your way up. To me, this is super, super cool stuff. What are your, what, and from here, I, I, I want to pass it on to you. What are, what are your thoughts on the current situation of stages, kitchen labor, and I'd also really like to know if you have staged, what's your favorite stage experience? Mine is definitely uh, between La Bernadette, which was my first stage experience, and uh, Noma, which was also crazy, 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 because I stayed across the, uh, literally across from the restaurant inside of a boat, and I would work for 15 hours, come home, sleep on the boat, and then I would come literally walk 10, 10 feet across to the to the restaurant and you know I'd show up at eight in the morning and leave at one one in the morning again it was pretty intense but I I learned a lot there it was really really cool to be there um so I'd love to know your your favorite stage experience uh so go ahead and leave those in the comments wherever you're listening or go ahead and tweet at me with uh the emulsion hashtag Next up, I want to talk about a new concept from the guys over at uh, Local, Daniel Patterson and Roy Choi's spot that uh, they set up in challenging neighborhoods to provide not only delicious, quality, affordable fast food, but also bring jobs to the area. And they basically announced their $1 cup of coffee is now going to branch out and stand alone in a shop called Yes, Please, Y-E-S space P-L-Z. They're going to start these in low-income places that need them the most, quote-unquote, and then expand them to more affluent areas. So how do they do it? How do they, how are they able to survive on a $1 cup of coffee? Uh, and local thickens the slim profit margins for cheap coffee by combining clever sourcing, a single coffee blend, a tidy menu of just four options, fast food volumes, ideally, and a riff on the old trick of turning old hot coffee into new cold coffee, producing very little waste. So that's the idea there. Uh, there's a bunch more information at the tail end of the article. I'm 
um, it's basically relating to the cost of these fancy coffee places, including the idea that uh, coffee has more aromatic compounds in it than wine does. So the idea of a $10 cup isn't that outrageous. Uh, made this article super interesting for me. It's listed in the show notes uh, below. Go ahead and check that out. Uh, all right, right before we get into the non-industry stuff, which is actually three different things this week, I need to do a little quick plug for myself. We are not sponsored here on the Emulsion, so I get to say whatever I want. And the first thing I want to say is, have you checked out my website yet? JustinConnor.com. It's up and fully running, functional. I worked out some kinks, but it's got all the info on my dinner projects, especially if you're in Seattle. Definitely sign up for that email list as well as it's basically given me the opportunity to host this podcast on iTunes. So if you're listening on iTunes, go ahead and tweet at me with hashtag the emulsion. So I know how many of you are currently enjoying that. Uh, I also dropped a little throwback episode of DOD, Dish of the Day, when I was back in Norway, where I make a super fun pumpkin and spelt dish. That's also listed in the show notes, so go ahead and give that a watch. Uh, the first non-industry thing I want to share is new music from Linkin Park dropped this week. I know, uh, I'm a 90s kid, so even though Linkin Park has changed quite a bit since then, and I was never really like that into the emo kind of scene, I really, really, really love Linkin Park, especially Mike Shinoda, and he basically starts off this song rapping, they push it into Pusha T, and then Stormzy, so there's a super dope lineup on Good Goodbye. It's worth a listen. Uh, I'm more psyched about uh, the fact that they're actually producing more music this year, and I'm pretty psyched to see what they what else they're going to drop going forward in 2017. Next, I have to I have to I have to I have to talk about the last Jedi trailer. My heart like fluttered when I saw it on my YouTube thumbnails. Uh, so I'm super pumped for Christmas this year and to get another Star Wars movie in my life. They've really been killing it, pumping out those movies uh, from uh, Rogue One last year. Uh, it's good. It's, it's crazy. They're really, really doing a great job. Um, so I'm excited about that movie. It looks a little bit dark, which is cool. Like Luke isn't all, uh, optimistic Luke. I'm sure you've seen the trailer if you're a fan, but, uh, it's listed in the show notes because I had to talk about it because it, it was one of the things that made my week this last week. Um, and last up is a movie that I actually sat down and rented this week, which is super rare for me to do. And that's Lion, the movie Lion. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's about a kid in India that falls asleep on a train and gets taken 1,600 kilometers from home and basically loses his family. He gets adopted by an Australian one, and when it's it's basically his story of finding his way back home. I think it's worth watching definitely for Dev Patel uh, doing an Australian accent on its own, but Nicole Kidman and Rooney Mara are awesome in it. Uh, my girlfriend Anna cried the whole time, so it's definitely an emotional movie but it's definitely well done. I enjoyed it, and it gave me all those India vibes after my trip there last month. The list to their IMDb is listed there, so you can either watch the trailer, or I'm sure there's an option to link out to buy tickets if it's still showing in your theaters. They were um, nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards this year, so go ahead and check that movie out if you're interested in something that gives you a little bit of nice aesthetics plus... A little bit of, you know, gives you some, some some feels. So with that, this has been episode 9 of The Emulsion. And regardless of if you've been watching live here on Facebook or if you're on the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, I really honestly want to extend my thanks to you for your attention. And to do that, I want to extend the little, the little giveaway that I, that I posted last week. 
I've still got two copies of Communal Table, a publication we covered a few weeks ago here on the show. Adrian over there was nice enough to send me a bunch of copies. I've sent some of them out already. Um, They're full of really, really nice stories and photos and recipes. I've got the staff issue and grace issues left in my possession, so if you're interested in getting a copy of that sent from me to you, I ask that you leave a comment about today's question of the day regarding anything that we covered. Uh, more often than not, that's either the Mugaritz question or the question on the staff la- uh, kitchen labor and stagiaire stories. Uh, go ahead and share this podcast on one of your social networks, tag me, and use hashtag the emulsion, and that's yours. No randomized selection, just the first two people to share this, follow me, and be hashtagged with hashtag the emulsion. You get a copy on me. I really look forward to hearing from you. Thanks in advance. I'm Justin Kana. Have a good one.